Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Oh, here's one. To keep your boss from firing you, write his name on a piece of paper, bury it in your backyard with a chopped up red candle and a black cat's tail. How to keep your boss from firing you. Quit. (laughs) I don't need no stinking Marie Laveau curse. The end. Let's talk about Marie Laveau, the voodoo queen of New Orleans. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1794, the U.S. flag was changed to 15 stripes and 15 stars. Eli Whitney patented the cotton gin. The Louvre is open to the public. Our old friend Catherine the Great allowed Jewish people to settle in Kiev. And composer Ferdinand Schubert and rich mean Cornelius Vanderbilt were both born. In 1801, Thomas Jefferson became the third president of the United States. The first census of Great Britain counted approximately 10 million citizens. The state of Louisiana was under Spanish rule, but not for long. And in 1794 or 1801, voodoo queen and gifted marketer Marie Laveau is born in New Orleans. Marie Laveau was likely born on September 16, 1801. Although accounts do vary, she was the daughter of Marguerite Dargental, free woman of color, and Charles Laveau, a free man of color. Though it must be stated that many histories you read will tell you that Marie's father was a white man, even so far as that he was a member of the state legislature. Not true. Her birth year is given in other places as 1794 or 1796. Like Marie Antoinette's family in a slightly, slightly earlier time frame, many, many girls in this family were given the first name Marie to honor the Virgin Mary. Our Marie actually had an older half-sister named Marie Louise, a younger half-sister named Marie de los Dolores, and a stepmother named Marie Francoise. You could just cry trying to sort everybody out. <laughs> no kidding. Her father and her mother were not married. Okay, so let's just say a baby named Marie of her known mother, whose dowry was later paid by a man named Charles Laveau, was baptized on the date above that we set, September 10th. That birth certificate lists the father as unknown. Maybe because, as Facebook likes to call it, it's complicated. Mama was under the protection as they say, of her long-term white boyfriend, father of her other children. Their relationship was a plassage, which was really more of a uh, way to skirt around people living and having relations, a woman being cared for by a wealthier man. And that's the relationship that her mother was involved with. And Papa was about to marry somebody else. (laughs) And somebody else that he was about to marry was a free woman of color, but of quite a bit of wealth. So he was about to put himself socially at a certain level. So keeping his name off of this document was probably for self-preservation. Well, all of this, this complication was a common enough occurrence around New Orleans at the time. And the local priest, who was known as Père Antoine, would baptize these natural children, as they were called. Um, Everybody... Either looked the other way or just didn't even think about it. Honestly, it was so common. Père Antoine is quite a uh, celebrity in New Orleans. He's still it. I mean, his memory still is. He was quite notorious. And then he 
found faith and he kind of blended his faith with the culture of the area. He was doing it to bring people into the church. It rustled a lot of feathers and the church actually tried to get him out, but his parishioners were like, uh, no, not going to happen. This is our guy. There's even an alley named after him to this day. So that's how big he was. So Mama was the daughter of an enslaved woman, and she had herself been born into slavery. She'd been freed at 18 with no restriction, just completely freed by her master. And she was um, known as the place or kept woman of an influential white government official. And she took his last name. And this man, of course, um, was not Marie's father. So there is a story. There's a whole story here that we're never going to know. How did Papa and Mama meet? What were the circumstances? Um, we literally have no idea. Because Marguerite, Marie's mother, lived with her common law husband, let's call him that, her day-to-day parent was her grandmother. Another thing that was common enough to not raise comment at all, although it did lead to some confusion, especially when looking back through the records as to whose children were actually whose, since often the parents lived other places, so... Mm -hmm. Uh, Another thing with all the names and then all the locations. Super confusing. So our baby Marie was born at a time in New Orleans that it was going through great change. The Spanish had been in control of this area for some time. And they were a little, shockingly, a little more liberal (laughs) with their policies on slavery, especially allowing slaves to buy themselves and their families free. The point is, I think, that the Spanish people saw slaves as people. I mean, unlucky people, unfortunate people, sucks to be them people, but people first, you know. Mm-hmm. And Americans saw slaves as property and all the laws treated them according to that philosophy. So everybody was doing better under the Spanish rule, actually. So you could buy your family free. You could buy yourself free. In addition, plenty of enslaved people were allowed to live apart from their owners and they could earn wages and save money. There was great mixing of the races. So both by blood, as we obviously see from before, how much more complicated could that be? And even socially, though, Gosh, New Orleans. It was an entity all unto itself, unlike anywhere else in America, for sure. Women could own and operate businesses, too. Also unusual, and they did in great numbers. The Spanish laws kind of came to bite the situation on the butt in a way because towards the end of the time that the Spanish ownership of the territory, I guess, 20% of the city's population was freed blacks. 20%. That's quite a bit. And with the 38% who were enslaved, this number was rising all the time because, like you said, they had ways to make money. They were buying their freedom. And Spain was going, ooh, this is getting a little bit out of control. And they did establish a few laws to kind of slow down that growth of the free people of color. They banned the practice that Marine's own mother was participating in, that concubine type of situation. They banned uh, large black assemblies from congregating. There was a huge laundry list of things that they couldn't do, especially on days of religious observation, i.e. Sunday. And any women of color had to wear what was called a tignon, which is like a headdress, a kerchief to signify their kind of less than status. Um, although (laughs) those women kicked back hard. These things that were supposed to make them look plain and simple, these women put flowers and needlework and these beautiful headscarves that were supposed to, you know, say you are a less than person became these huge status symbols. They also incidentally became super fashionable. I am going to put on the Pinterest board a picture of Dolly Madison from 
almost the first year that Marie Laveau started her um, push toward popular voodoo practices. So the same year, Dolly Madison up in Washington, D.C. has a glorious tignon on. Uh, So not only is it fashionable in New Orleans, not only is it pushed back against the sumptuary laws of the Spanish, it has transcended. This is streetwear that has become top drawer fashion for the elite in Washington, D.C. And of course, that now, given, you know, the conversations that are going on in our world, is that cultural appropriation? <laughs> it was a long time ago. It was a very long time ago. So when our Marie was about two years old, Spain traded their Louisiana colony for Tuscany. Hmm. And um, Napoleon and France was now the boss. But something had happened in Haiti, just off the coast, that was changing France's perception of Louisiana. Over a decade of slave revolts had made the whole profitable slave trade sugar rum part of the new world into this black hole to throw money down. And black residents there were systematically murdering the white residents of the island. It was known as Saint Dominique or Santo Domingo by the Spanish. And Napoleon could not really see messing with all this area, frankly. I got other places to put my resources. I can't, I think the time for all this is done. And so, We enter the only sentence of this story that America has probably learned in class. Napoleon sold the Louisiana Territory to America for $15 million. You know, adjusted for current money, that's $285 million, which is still a very good price because President Thomas Jefferson received the land between the Rocky Mountains and the Mississippi River from the Gulf Coast all the way up to the Canadian border. This is not just New Orleans. It was almost double the territory that the United States had possessed up until that point. So this is a huge land deal. Huge. So if we were to narrow our focus back to New Orleans, I have to tell you, the residents wept. They cried. They were very worried. They were very afraid for their future. Under the French at first, and then later under the more benevolent Spanish, and then back to the French extremely briefly, this city was a thriving place. You know, merchants, ships, close-knit communities, more racially diverse and proud of it, I have to tell you, than anywhere in the New World. And most people, including Baby Marie, were Catholic. You know, French and Spanish. Of course, they were Catholic. In African culture, the food, the music, the stories, even religious practices were an important part of everyone's everyday life. Everyone's not just the people of color. And I imagine it had some of the, gosh, what would you even call it? Uniqueness, weirdness. I mean, okay, Susan went to school there. (laughs) She knows better than I what, I can't put my, I can't put a word to the indefinable quality of New Orleans. I, you know, inclusiveness. I went to college there and that's one of the reasons I moved there because it was such a unique city and it still is. And I personally know what it means to miss New Orleans. And I do every day. It's just such a great cultural center. It's the closest to like a European city that you can get in the United States, but it's like no European city that you've known because all these different influences built the city. A lot of people think about New Orleans as being on the Gulf of Mexico, when in actuality, it's about 100 miles off. It was established on the highest level of land. And even then, it isn't that far. I think it's like seven feet above sea level, the highest point. It's not that far at all. But it was a perfect spot for a port, you know, and that port would take you all the way up the Mississippi River, which goes right through the center of the United States. It's huge. It could take you right up to Canada, a whole different country, right? Right. It's a big deal. So all these different, you know, the French, the Spanish, the British, 
later the Americans put their stamp on things, the Haitians. It's just this beautiful gumbo of a city. That's the word you were looking for. Well, maybe. Yes, I think that's right. And I have heard of America, you know, we always refer to America as the melting pot. Everything just kind of becomes the same thing. But in a gumbo, everything retains its own character while mixing together quite happily. Funny you should say that, but that's exactly what the voodoo religion was in New Orleans. It wasn't like Like a lot of people say the Haitians brought voodoo to New Orleans. That's not the case at all. It was already there. People brought it from Africa years before. It was kind of there in an incarnation. The Haitians brought some more and it blended with what was already here. It blended with, in Marie Lobo's case, the Catholicism. And it created a whole new gumbo of religion. So we will talk about the integration of the Catholic Church with voodoo a little bit later. But I have to say the dark forces... Not voodoo forces, the actual dark forces, I refer to the Americans, um, the new bosses, were um, gathering here. They were pretty much not okay with all this race mixing, number one, and all these exotic cultural practices, number two, and the weird food. I mean, this is all a recipe for interesting times, shall we say. And the freedoms began to harden up, starting about now. I'm sorry to say. We have missed the golden age. So not much is known of Marie before the age of about 18. What we can say categorically, it is very unlikely that she got any kind of a formal education at all, other than, of course, a cultural one and a practical one, i.e. running a house, cooking, that kind of thing. Through her whole adult life, she was not able to write and probably not able to read. Mm-mm. No, not at all. And and again, we're going back to the history of New Orleans, which, and I'm going to do this now because I know that somebody's going to write to us, the highest point in New Orleans is 20 feet above sea level. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh they're going to write to us in 10 years. You know, New Orleans is 20 feet above sea level. It won't be in 20 years. Uh-uh. No, no, probably not. A hurricane destroyed New Orleans within the first five years of its being built. They had to start from scratch. How about them apples? After about- the first few times you might adjust your oh they did they brought in engineers to build um the canal system which unfortunately failed during katrina but bad things happen you learn from them and you go on from there and they've done as best as they can for a city so close to the gulf of mexico and it gets a lot of hurricanes and with large portions of it you know below sea level well marie was married at 18 to jacques perry Also called Santiago Perry. Keep in mind, there's Spanish influences and French influences going all over the place. So you have different nationalities of names. But she was married by the same priest who had baptized her in the first place. Old Père Antoine. Again. I told you, this guy's a big deal. He's the man. (laughs) And he is the man with her. I mean, they had a pretty close relationship for her, you know, until he died. Well, Jacques was a refugee from all of that bloodshed over in Santo Domingo. And he was officially listed as a quadroon, which is one quarter African and three quarters white. Her stepmother, another Marie, was referred to as a grief, which is the opposite, three quarters black, one quarter white. Marie herself is referred to as a mulatress. It's only important, and I'm going to talk about this a tiny little bit, because it seems like this was a key identifier in New Orleans culture. So, Culture as we see it, having learned it in Gone with the Wind, is very binary, right, in the South, racially. There's white and there's not white, the end. There was a very, very clear triad system in New Orleans. There's black, there's white, and there is colored. 
for which there were many words for different combinations. The Americans could not get their heads around that, that system. But I think it's very important to know that when we say the word colored, that's the word that was used for a wide range of mixed race people and was considered its own separate category, by the way. Mm Yeah. You know, and I had a lot of difficulty with that as I was like writing out the points that I wanted to remember. In my head, I'm wanting to write people of color and I'm looking at the word, you know, mulatto or, you know, colored, the past and the present having this little, you know, convergence in my brain. Really, really. We mean nothing disparaging when we say the word colored because that's just the term of the day. Um, Mm -hmm. Anyway, just wanted to get that in there. You'll hear that word and, you know, that's the end. You know what I love that we just kind of skipped over her childhood, but you know why? Because there's really nothing written about it. I mean, we can speculate, of course, but we know that she wasn't educated. So that took out the whole school thing. We know that her grandmother and her mother taught her things about life, but there's a lot of Marie's life that was is still shrouded in mystery, which is probably the way she would have wanted it, I think. Well, and until you are in the official record somewhere, the marriage... The baptism, that's kind of when she appears. That's all we can really say for sure. Well, Marie's papa, who acknowledged her as his natural daughter, by the way, even though his name's not on the birth certificate, gave them a plot of land that they did not seem to ever live there. Um, Yeah. It was like an investment property. They never lived there. At first, when they took up residence together as new man and wife, they lived in a little house on Bayou Street that was owned also by Marie's father, although he never deeded them that house. Mm -hmm. And Marie had two daughters with Jacques, Felicité, who was born when Marie was 16, before they were married. Mm -hmm. Again, A, common, B, nobody cared. And Marie Angélie, born right after they were married. Mm -hmm. And then Jacques just vaporizes from the records. He does. Have you ever heard the song by Bobby Bear called Marie Laveau? Nope. I'll put it in the show notes. Surprisingly, it was written in part by Shel Silverstein. You know, the kids. Where the sidewalk ends. I know, my daughter's first favorite poet. It's a little, you know, I don't know, even know what kind of music it is. But um, in it, they talk about Handsome Jack and how he wasn't long for the world after he met Marie. And that's kind of what happened. This is our Handsome Jack, Handsome Jacques. He just Does it say in the story or in the song what happened exactly to Handsome Jacques? Because did he go back to Haiti? Maybe. But more likely, did he die in one of these yellow fever epidemics, striking people down with such frequency? Probably. Well, in the song, it's implied that Marie struck him down. Well, sorry, Shel Silverstein. I am discounting the fact that Marie did him in because it's really not in her character, as we will find out later. But if he was buried quickly in a mass grave due to yellow fever, that would not have been at all uncommon. Okay, so whatever the real story is, Marie had Jacques declared dead sometime after we lose him in the records and um, was hereafter known as the Widow Perry. And I'm sorry to say that both of these daughters disappear also early in their lives. We can get Felicite to about seven at her baptism, but the prevailing wisdom is that they both died in childhood. Um, New Orleans was and is a very low-lying city, home to the aforementioned yellow fever, malaria, typhus, 
cholera. This is not the home of what you might call good sanitation. In addition to the regular old things stalking you in childhood at this time, you know, the diphtheria, the odds were not in your favor to make it. And likely neither of them did. This is probably a good time for a break. And when we come back, we'll find out what happens to the widow Paris. Marie's husband, Jacques, has died, disappeared, or otherwise simply left our narrative. Bye-bye. Wouldn't we say au revoir, Jacques? So Marie became involved with and committed to, I mean, a lifelong relationship, at least his life, with a white man named Christophe Glapion. Now, was it a marriage? I have to say no, because legal marriage between white and black or white and colored, as we say, a fully separate category, that was illegal. So no, it wasn't a marriage, but they fully Kurt Russell, Goldie Hawned it. You know what I mean? Like they are committed like pairs of geese. They are not breaking up. Can I just say his whole name? Because, you know, we're like Christophe. No, it was Louis Christophe Dominique Doning de Glapion. And I almost think the de Glapion means that he had some nobility in his past. I'm not even going to go into genealogy. People will tell you, you will read that he was a man of color. And he was not. He was definitely not. He was a white Frenchman. And he was about 12 years older than Marie. They had together as many as 15 children that we can prove only, only seven of them. Um, And I'm sorry to say that only two of those children made it to adulthood. And I'm also sorry to say that both daughters were named Marie. So we've got Marie Heloise and Marie Philomène. More Maries. And there was another infant daughter in the middle of that, Marie Louise. Yes, but she doesn't enter the narrative because she didn't enter the life. They did have a son who lived almost seven years, but unfortunately he succumbed to one or another of the perils that were waiting for the child in such an environment at such a time. So we've got two daughters living with us. And now... Legend will tell you a funny story here. The story goes that there was a young man on trial for a serious crime, and his family was absolutely frantic that the trial seemed to be going against him. And Marie Laveau is said to have put three hot guinea peppers in her mouth and go to kneel at the cathedral. This is the Cathedral San Louis, a Catholic church, delivering her pain up to God. And then proceeded to the courtroom where she put the three peppers under the judge's bench. And I hope got herself a glass of milk. Kids, do not put hot peppers in your mouth. (laughs) Even if you see it on YouTube, except for there is a funny VAT19 video that I'll put in the Pinterest board. Yes. So the young man was acquitted. Hooray. And according to the story, his grateful father gave Marie the deed to a cottage on St. Anne Street. The story is colorful. The story is spicy. But if you want the real story... It's vanilla as anything. Marie's grandmother died, and her house on St. Anne Street between Rampart and Burgundy Streets was sold. It's not there anymore, by the way. But it was sold so the heirs could divide their shares of the property. And Marie's husband, really, let's just call him the husband, um, he bought it for about $3,000. This is $56,000 in today's money, and he had a mortgage and everything. It's very unromantic. And I say bring back the hot peppers. (laughs) I don't know. I think it's kind of romantic. 
he wanted to take care of his wife and his family, his growing family, ever growing. You know, I was looking into where that idea that they could have had up to 15 children came from. And it's quite possible that there were a number of children that lived with them um, that were from the community. Because Marie, contrary to one of the uh, versions of her, she had a very big heart and she was always taking care of her community. So that's a theory that made a lot of sense to me to kind of say, oh, that's where all those kids came from. Yeah, she often brought in unfortunate neighbors, you know, street orphans, even if she didn't know them, to live in her house and took care of them. How about this? We will get into the voodoo. I'm sure that's why we're all here, probably. But I want to place the voodoo in the background of mundane life, like mortgages and taking in street orphans and et cetera, just for a minute. And tell you guys that Marie Laveau was a generous woman. So in addition to, honestly feeding, clothing, and housing people that aren't even related to her, she posted bond for people of color who had run afoul of the law. And her house was not right on the road. Most of the others were, but hers was kind of set back on the lot. And the Laveau Galapion allowed Choctaw Indian families to set up their camps right in the front yard. Marie and her other relatives had an extensive knowledge of herbs and their properties. Yes, traditionally, Another quality of a witch or a voodoo practitioner. Also, if you recall from our Eleanor of Aquitaine podcast, a quality attributed to ladies of the manor in medieval times. Herbal medicine has a very respectable history. So if whatever was wrong with you could be cured without modern medicine, you'd be better off with Marie and women like her than you would be with a, quote, real doctor who's probably going to bleed you until you were weak, whereas an herbalist might give you tea made from chincona bark. Oh, impressive. (laughs) That would help your malaria because it has quinine in it. That quinine, that keeps popping up, doesn't it? You know what she reminded me a lot of was, we talked about, if you want to hear more about, you know, medicine from this time, the Lydia Pinkham. We talked about her, you know, she had picked up these recipes from her family and from her community that actually helped people where the doctors of the time were just hurting them, you know, with, with morphine and bloodletting. And in New Orleans, uh, there was a yellow fever epidemic and the city thought, hey, let's just shoot off cannons to help clear the air. So as you recall from the Lydia Pinkham episode that Susan was just talking about, Lydia Pinkham herself said in a matter of advice, here's how you get better, my friend. You hear the doctor's carriage wheels outside of your house? Get yourself out of bed, drag yourself into the wardrobe, close the door, and don't answer anyone until you hear the doctor drive away. That was her medical advice. Brilliant. Brilliant medical advice. There's, um, I'm going to link people up to the Melnick Medical Museum. It's an online resource, and it's got all kinds of um, traditional you know, doctor treatments. It'll just blow your mind. It might frighten you desperately. (laughs) So there seems to be this vision of Marie Laveau's house as some kind of clearinghouse for freeing slaves, which seems to be, honestly, I have to tell you, just part of the mythology. The reality is, like many free people of color, Marie owned slaves. And it boggles our minds. We're used to that whole binary system we talked about, the one drop rule. Either you're white or you're not white. The situation in New Orleans was just more complicated than that. Marie and her husband owned at least eight slaves, Um, you know, serially, not all at the same time. One was an eight-year-old child who stayed with the family for 24 years. So you think, 
oh, you know, adoption. She's part of the family. No, she was then sold. So not so much. Yeah. Um, everyone seems to have been sold at a profit, too. Especially a baby born into the family, i.e. with no purchase price, that eventually was sold for a socking profit at the age of 15. So there's some cold-bloodedness here that I, you know, this isn't a stop on the Underground Railroad. And I, I don't know. I'm looking at these transactions, and I don't see any kind of greater strategy of freedom here. I, I really don't. Like, just the regular old cruel institution. We really do not have a clear indicator on how the slaves were actually treated within the household. I imagine if it was worse or better than her neighbors, it might be mentioned, but there's really nothing. Yeah. Although I did see, I'm not to say what you're talking about was predominant, but I did see a few instances where she helped them, you know, she bought slaves to help them buy their freedom. But flip side, you know, did they have to work it off at her house? Does that make sense at all? No, I mean, yeah, there were a couple of slaves that had actually come to her in the first place with this condition put upon them that was also very curious to me, where they were sold with the understanding that they were to be manumitted, that's freed, at the age of 25. So you were really only renting four years worth of labor or whatever, because you knew legally they came to you with that condition upon them. You couldn't keep them. Marie actually used one of those slaves illegally as collateral on a loan, in fact, at one point. So, yes, I don't know. So I don't know if those are the slaves people say she bought to give them their freedom because she and her husband weren't the ones that ended up having to free them. It was the owners after. Right. I just really can't untangle that. But um, I'm not sure there was a great benevolent society going on in the household. So, So here we are in this undeniably crowded house. Uh, people living in the front yard, you know, um, everyone's hanging out the wash and cooking and the other thousand mundane, as we keep saying, things to keep life going, shopping, sewing, keeping the kids off their iPhones, all that stuff. <laughs> Burying the fidget spinners in the yard, giving them the evil sign. Hey, if you bury it upside down like a St. Francis, something happened good to your house. <laughs> I just don't know. You know what? <laughs> Fidget spinners have the benefit of being 100% quiet, unlike bottle flipping. So, Oh, oh, I am with you 1,000% on that one, and that bottle flipping. Yeah, it's bad news. So Marie went to the cathedral on Sundays and participated in mass at St. Louis Cathedral. And also this, once a week, Marie would also hold a voodoo service either in her house or her assistant's houses or in empty lots or the forest or Congo Square downtown, and they would go something like this. There was a setup of objects on a white cloth on the floor, assorted things, red peppers, rum, food, coins, gifts for the spirits. That's what that was. And um, whatever spirits they were going to talk to that day. And there were all shades of skin at these meetings, a particularly New Orleanian, wait, how do I say that? New Orleanian? Is that the word? Mm -hmm. Yes, that was very good. <laughs> well, it was a, a state of being that wouldn't have happened anywhere else. And I have to tell you, the Catholic Church in this town was integrated too. So it's geographical. It's not religion specific. So um, there was singing and there was music and there were people who were called a servitor or assistants that served as, I guess, what? Fetchers and carriers, placing this, saying that, like an altar boy, maybe. And the priestess or priest whoever you had, would dress in white or blue if the meeting was for what they called good work. Let so-and-so have a baby or please cure Antoine of this illness, you know. And she'd be wearing brown if we needed to pursue a slightly darker course. 
often just please make this person go away. And that was considered dark enough to be wearing brown. Yeah. <laughs> they would light certain candles in the corners of the room, depending on what was happening. And the service would end in this energetic dance after everyone had asked for what they wanted. So prayed, you might say. So you'd ask for what you want. And then there was a celebration um, dance sing at the end. It really sounds quite lovely. I have to tell you, I learned a lot during this research. I was very sad that I had been misled for so long. It seems to me that voodoo is not what we're marketed to. Horror movies, I guess, or whatever. It's kind of more about harmony and nature. And they have this thought that there is an invisible parallel world kind of coexisting with the one we see. And it's all about balance and the laws of nature. And the media has really wrecked up its image. I am very delighted to say that it seems more gentle than I was led to believe. Do you think? Well, um, yeah, I do. It's it's definitely, although I don't know that I'm going to blame the media on it. I'm going to blame people who practiced it with ill intent, I guess is a good way to put it. That's fair. Yeah. And you know what I loved about now? I know I'm going to get emails from all you Christians out there that are going, Susan, you're a Lutheran and you're saying all these nice things about voodoo. I know. Don't You don't need to tell me. But I'm on Marie's side in, in this story. I have to be. Voodoo was actually very much um, a matriarchy. Three quarters of the practitioners were women. Can you find any church anywhere that has that many women in it? No. I wonder if it has a lot to do with the fact that nature, traditionally, I mean, it's mother nature, right? <laughs> mother earth. Or if it's focus on nature makes women a more logical practitioner. Sure. Or maybe it was a place that women could be leaders. Fair enough. The Catholic Church, especially Parent One, was really pretty accommodating about voodoo in particular from Haiti that had changed into New Orleans voodoo, which is its own type of animal there. Um, and other African folk religions in general, they were both hierarchical. There's a main powerful being in both God in one case or Bongier in the other. There's a host of lesser supernatural beings whose role is sort of as a go-between. You can't talk to the superior being because he's, you know, superior. He's way up there. Saints, in the one case, and spirits in the other, will go talk to the superior being for you. They will intercede for you. They'll plead your case. And the African religions had this tradition, um, say they overtook a neighboring tribe and encountered local gods. As they came across them, they would incorporate them because obviously this local god is operating. Why would we make him mad? We are no fool. We will incorporate him into our pantheon. And obviously these Spanish people have some power and their god obviously has some power. Let us incorporate this local god, the Spanish people's god, into our gods. Um, let's ask their gods for help too. Why not? I mean, Maman Brigitte is associated with St. Bridget. And she's sometimes pictured as a white woman with long red hair. <laughs> I'm just saying. St. Anthony is affiliated with Yonsu, St. Peter with Legba, the guardian of the gate to the spirit world. Now, we've heard of St. Peter at the gate. This is Legba at the gate. It's the same guy as far as they're concerned. You know what I mean? Oh, I totally know what you mean. And I'm so glad that you put that that way. And I'm glad it was you that did it. Because I know that there's a lot of Christian people that are saying, how could Marie possibly justify practicing all these dark arts with her Catholicism? It just doesn't mesh. You just said why it does right there. Boom. That's how Marie thought. Good job. Well, and I don't even think voodoo is dark arts. I guess we'll get into that later. You don't. 
I'm talking about the people that think it is. There's pageantry in both. There's ritual in both. There's sacred objects. And you know what? There's something called a devil. Well, voodoo certainly understands bad spirits. You know what? We'll fold that in too. Fair enough. And I guess the church's point is, maybe not, I say the church, but at least Père Antoine, who held sway over this whole city. Père Antoine's view is, you know what? That's fine. We're going to bring him in nicely, calmly with this similarity. I don't see a problem with this. They can do both. And then you know what? We can hammer out the doctrine as we go. Everybody's been baptized, right? So that's fine. Though the Americans, the new bosses, the Protestants, for the most part, I guess I have to say the Protestants, were very (laughs) suspicious of all of this enthusiasm. And they were frightened of these practices. You know, not the least of which reason why is that the slave revolt in Haiti had begun with a voodoo sacrifice of a black pig. And all these refugees from that very island are now sitting here in New Orleans doing who knows what. You, you know, that is pretty scary, I guess. If if you heard of a, a massacre of all white people mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, based on this religion, you know, it conflates in your mind, you know. They caused okay. the death with this religion. And then they're all over here doing I don't know what. They're planning who knows what. Um, you know, fear of some uprisings like that happening in the South were evidently a major way that people could get non-slaveholding whites to fight in the Civil War. And I'd never thought about that before. Hmm. They could literally point to what they called Santo Domingo. You know, remember, that happened and these people are still around here. This could happen to you. You better help us. Hmm. I didn't realize that was happening. Yeah. And, you know, that, you know, let's go back and not just blame the media, but it's that kind of thinking that gave voodoo the name it has, that negative connotation that you think of, that I think that played a huge role in it. So as Susan said before, Marie worked as a hairdresser for white women, one of the very best conduits for all kinds of information, if you ask me. She heard the white gossip from her clients, everybody else's gossip from their servants and their slaves. And in the right hands, or specifically in the right head, All of this information could become a powerful tool, maybe rising to the level of blackmail, although that does not really seem to be in character for Marie Laveau. I think she just used it in her practice to kind of aid in convincing people or aid in cementing her reputation, I think. She held individual consultations at either her own house or in a customer's house. So you'd you'd bring Marie your problems and she would put them before the spirits. She didn't demand of the spirits, she asked. You always provided offerings. And it's amazing what the spirits told her, wasn't it? That you hadn't told anyone except your friend, whoever, while you were getting your hair done. It's amazing what Marie could tell you that the spirits told you. (laughs) Um, So those details bolstered her credibility, her knowledge of the hidden lives of everyone, and her reputation grew. Her public manner was that of dignity and of self-assurance. And she reminds me a lot of, in the best possible way, Please do not think I'm insulting her. The Godfather, I think. You know, Marie Laveau handled things. You didn't want to get on the wrong side of someone who evidently had so much power. She had the ear of all the spirits and she had all this prestige. And you can find, I would say you can find many recipes for voodoo work, for charms to banish someone, which always involved dust from their footprints, which is pretty cool. Um, <laughs> to love charms in which you turn a statue of St. Anthony upside down until he gives you what you want, which I think is just great. Um, we can just link you to those rituals. I, you know, 
it's more interesting to just read for yourself anyway. There's ingredient lists and techniques, etc. I have a whole book of it. I'll I'll who's going to recommend it in the media section. Okay. Okay. Very good. So, you know, we're not going to go too much into the day-to-day practice of individual wishes and dreams and hopes, but Marie did make and sell what was called Grigri bags. They're these voodoo amulets that you wear and they contain things like notes, often written out of the Quran, by the way, which I didn't realize. Oh, um, Bones, Lucky Charms, not the kind that come in the box, although those marshmallows are super. <laughs> um, <laughs> what? Nothing. I'm just imagining you sitting down with your big bag of marshmallows from Lucky Charms. No, Did my father-in-law lives right where they make those um, marshmallows. You can buy whole bags of just the marshmallows, but they would not fit in a Grigri. Also, they get super sticky. No and good. plus, that's not enough. I mean, these are little bags that you can wear around your neck. Right. So, yeah. So there might be carved rocks in there or herbs um, or grave dust, um, whatever you needed for your specific situation, either for protection for the wearer or to cause harm to someone else. So we're going to link you to all those rituals and information on the Grigri, and you can read all of that for yourself. But what Marie practiced more than anything else is what I'm leading up to here is I'm going to call it headology. And that is a term from Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. And in my opinion, it's the basis for a lot of religious practice. Yes, headology, which I am going to define as what people truly believe in is what is real to them. So the way in which a guy sees himself and his surroundings equals his reality. So I guess the point of headology is if you change how he views the things or himself, you can alter reality for him. It's magic. I mean, what would I call this? Self-fulfilling prophecy? The placebo effect? Well, no, because when you believe something to be true, you that's a great way to explain it. And it, you know, if I believe that Jesus was the son of God, Jesus was the son of God. You don't believe that, but that's okay because you believe something else just as strongly. Gosh, if more people did that, it am doesn't I not matter under- if there are what? actual spirits or gods. I'm not even sure it matters so much in headology because if you've created a belief in the first place with upbringing, maybe in your case, or trappings or reputation, or you pull out your wand and turn a teapot into a kitten or whatever, whatever you did in the first place to create the belief... Like, okay, so a test would have to be to take non-believers and put them in a double-blind test. Like, you half of them get whatever treatment and half of them don't because a believer is a corrupt experiment. They're already halfway there. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. No, I totally. So Laveau has an advantage because her people are already halfway to changing their own destiny before she even gets to them. Sure. And in addition to her, you know, her potions and concoctions and, and bags, she's got intelligence, you know, she's got information. So when one of her hair clients says something that alludes to the fact that she thinks that her husband is cheating on her, and Marie knows for a fact that her husband is cheating on her, Marie can offer her services, right? So, and that's how she built up her client base. So when that woman finds out that her husband is indeed having the affair and something has happened because Marie has said something to someone else down the line to make it stop or make the husband move away or whatever, suddenly this woman whose husband was cheating on her and was in this terrible situation, it's resolved. And as far as she's concerned, Marie's potions did that. When it was really the telephone tree. Oh, exactly. Exactly. It wasn't that pepper that she put under the judge's chair, you know, that changed his mind. 
it was something else that happened behind the scenes that no one really knows about. You know, there's so many pieces to that puzzle and only Marie was the person to be able to complete it in her head. And she certainly wasn't telling anybody how it happened. Well, so I, um, I guess we all know that I am the goddess Skeptocles. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I don't, uh, necessarily believe in anything without categorical proof. So I actually really, really like these explanations, which seem to me to have an evidence trail. So, yes. So we have an evidence trail. We also have branding. Now, we have to say nobody really knows what Marie Laveau looks like. According to her daughter, Philomene, her mother never sat for a photographer, certainly, and she never sat for a portraitist either. So all the pictures we see of her are speculative portraits based on descriptions, I guess. Um, Which is probably better than, you know, white Jesus. Who also never sat for a portrait. Oh, there you go. So Marie Laveau had a back catalog of results. Marie Laveau knew things. Marie Laveau was things. So I would really love to talk about those things. But now it's time to take a little break. And we will be back and we will explore the character of Marie Laveau and all of her many facets. When we come back. So we are back and we have discovered that Marie Laveau was, in fact, many things, one of which, sadly, at this point in our story, was a widow. Christophe died suddenly when she was 54 and he left her in significant financial trouble due to, it looks like, some poor investments and it almost caused her to lose her home. His family, when he died, fought to keep any inheritance from her and from their children. Marie Laveau had gone to the extent of applying to the United States government um, for his war pension and had to backdate her own birth date to try to, quote, prove that she had been married to him during his service. So she made herself in the official record significantly older, which might account for people mistaking her birth date. But they denied her petition, you know, saying that wasn't good enough proof for them. So she didn't get any money that way. Christoph had thought before he died that he had kind of countered the issue of white men not being able to leave things to their mixed race families anymore by having sold the house to a colored friend long ago who had given it to one of the children because transfer of property between colored people was perfectly legal. He thought he circumvented that, and he sort of did, but there was still a mortgage, and that was not accounted for. And another family friend had to step in and save her financially. So this whole time, this family had not been living rich and high on the hog, the cottage. We can probably show you some pictures of similar cottages, even though this one is no longer around. It was not a grand establishment. The impression that I got was they were pretty simple. And I was so impressed that throughout their marriage, and I'm calling it a marriage, uh, <laughs> they uh, that she managed to keep his name out of all of her, her business dealings, I guess is what we're going to call it. Yeah. Yeah. He wasn't connected to her in that at all, which I thought was um, probably A, really difficult, and B, you know, I mean, he was with her. He They were doing things together. They were not 
you know, having parallel lives. Think about this. How much is your husband really involved in podcasting? And it happens all around him. (laughs) Yes, he's completely oblivious of it, actually. (laughs) Well, so Marie was also, in addition to being the widow, she was also the woman approached by town officials during the yellow fever epidemic of 1853, which ended up killing 8,000 people that year in New Orleans alone. That is a large percentage of the population. African-Americans in general, and Marie Laveau in particular, were thought to be immune to the disease. And you know what? Curiously, mostly in fact, adults were. Because once you've had it, you have natural immunity and you're not going to get it again. And you saw that child mortality rate. Do you know what I mean? Many, many didn't survive, but they already already hadn't survived. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the ones that weren't immune were already gone. Um, and it was sometimes called the stranger's disease because it so often struck immigrants who had not had it before and didn't have an immunity. City officials had delayed reporting this outbreak until well over a thousand people had died, and they were afraid that if they put a quarantine on the city, which was the only known tactic that worked, it would wreck up trade. And so they lied, and they kept it a secret, and they therefore facilitated its spread throughout the United States as visitors carried it upriver. You had a few days before symptoms would come, and uh, man, they did not do the world a service that day. But Marie and her followers, they did step in and they nursed and they cared for the patients. They were very visible in their bravery, let me just tell you. And like we talked about in the Clara Barton episode, her brother was in torment until he received treatment that prevented doctors from seeing him and got better. Like the Lydia Pinkham episode. <laughs> She said, hide in the wardrobe and don't let the doctor see you. There was no cure for yellow fever. You were better off letting nature take its course and having Marie Laveau and friends mop your forehead and whisper words of comfort in your ear and get you a new blanket than you ever were with the official medical establishment. Their treatment was copious amounts of mercury. That and this is where they would have done something brilliant, like shoot off a cannon to clear the air. (laughs) Yeah, that's so going to work. I think they were still operating under the miasma theory of disease, and maybe the loud noise would blow the miasma away. And they also did one thing that actually might have helped, since this is a mosquito-borne illness, is they would burn barrels of tar Mm -hmm. uh, to create smoke. And maybe that did keep the mosquitoes away. But they're still operating under, let's replace the miasma with something else. So no one even knew that it was a mosquito-borne illness until 1900. So there's no, there's no cure. There's still no cure, which is really sad. Get your vaccines, kids. Can you believe that? There's still no known cure for yellow fever. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, it was a terrifying disease. You'd vomit these black coffee ground-like things, and there's massive organ failure. And of course, you turn yellow, thus the name. And though Marie and friends had, in fact, been as safe as kittens, no one knew that. You know what? She didn't even know that. Mm -hmm. Think about that, how brave that is. They had no idea that they were perfectly fine. The street cred of these people right now cannot be overestimated. No, it can't. And it can only help Marie's reputation around town because if you had just had Marie sit with your child and suddenly your child is finally better, how did that happen? Why isn't Marie sick? Is it her voodoo? Is it her gri-gri bag that she's got hanging around her neck? You know, marketing people. And she didn't cure everyone. Of course she didn't. Nature didn't cure everyone, and that's who you're depending on. But her patients ended up, on the whole, a lot better off than those that were interfered with. And I think that's the reputation that she has gained here. So she's evidently, Marie was, the voodoo queen who led these extravagant ceremonies on the biggest holiday in the voodoo calendar, which is called St. John's Day, and it's June 23rd. 
And I am guessing it's a, gosh, it's like Mardi Gras plus the 4th of July, kind of, plus a church picnic. These were all night celebrations. I mean, everybody's dancing and singing. There's drums. There's shouting. There's bonfires all along Lake Pontchartrain. This gathering scared the crap out of the local government, by the way cemented their fear and suspicion of voodoo, I guess. I don't know. Glorified and cemented the faith of her followers. So well done for walking that tightrope. Oh, totally. And, you know, we use the term voodoo queen. The queens are the only people that can lead these ceremonies. It's not like, you know, oh, you're the shoe queen. or You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, yeah. You're the queen of uh, rocking the messy hair and the lipstick. It was like calling a priest father. You know, it was a title. Right, right. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. We don't mean to say that casually. No, and I think a lot of people do, because I know I had that messed up in my head. I was like, ah, she's the queen of it, you know. But no, she was the queen. Now, it's funny here. There seems to be a disturbance in the force about now. There is a Marie Laveau walking around who seems to have been untouched by time. Had Marie Laveau been granted immortality? (laughs) As her reputation is starting to gain that level of incredulous amounts of belief, which... Okay, fair enough. There is a fork in the road here as the St. John's Days get crazier and begin to be associated with what? Naked dancing, um, snakes rolling over your head, a place called the Maison Blanche where white men could meet up with young ladies of negotiable affection mm-hmm. and then subject themselves to blackmail about it, by the way. Yeah, no kidding. Now, earlier in the, towards the end of the Spanish control of the area, in the French, that whole area, the quadroon balls were a thing. They were a way for colored women to get protection, you know, very much like Marie's own mother did, you know, where she met a man that provided for her. And that's where they were introduced at things called quadroon balls. The whole nature of the quadroon ball, we could go on for a whole episode about how, you know, these could be uh, flesh peddling and, um, you know, how they were morally not a really cool idea versus the other side that says, hey, this is a way for this girl to be provided for for her life, you know, by this man taking care of her in an arrangement that isn't legal in any any other way. So there had been quadroon balls. The quadroon ball image kind of changed to be these wild orgies. There had been a Maison Blanche, which is the a cottage that Marie had down by Lake Pontchartrain and she did have parties there but they weren't as um, flesh peddly I guess is a good way to put it as they were suddenly becoming at this time and suddenly quote Marie Laveau has a familiar a big black snake named zombie that evidently talks to her and participates fully in voodoo rites so I wrote the original Nagini so it isn't the original Nagini because there are Naga that are snake deities in Hinduism, by the way. So I was sad <laughs> that I was trying to get in a Harry Potter reference that actually was a Hindu reference. So I'm sorry <laughs> about that. I messed up well, on that. So yes, zombie was not the original snake familiar. Um, so this new Marie, what is happening here? She's bolder and meaner and less cozy and more prone to evil deeds and nefarious work. And in fact, is someone else. I think. Mysteriously, no one is really sure exactly who this parallel Marie really was, though people lean toward it being her youngest daughter, Marie Philomen. A lot of people do. And that's the predominant um, theory that you'll read in anything 
that you read about Marie Laveau. You know, you'll read Marie Laveau at about age 70 was done. She had her last service and she turned everything over to her daughter, Marie Jr., who then looked an awful lot like Marie Sr. when she was younger, picked up the torch, but she lacked the empathy that Marie, original Marie, OG Marie had. That's the story that you're going to read the most. And there's actually some question about whether that's true or not. So this person referred to as Marie II or Marie II took up the reputation and the mantle of the original and expanded it, I assume, with Marie I's permission. I don't really know. I don't think she took it in a good direction. That's what I'm saying. So (laughs) meanwhile, Marie I had taken to expanding her charitable work. And um, she was notable for ministering personally to condemned men in prison. I'm reminded of Susan Sarandon as the nun in that movie with Sean Penn, Dead Man Walking. Did you ever see that? Yeah, she's a real person. Yeah. So, oh, okay. <laughs> um, so she's the spiritual advisor to this man on death row. And that, Marie Laveau, is taking a lot on yourself emotionally, I think. Mm-hmm. She didn't have to do this. I mean, this was her special mission. And even here... Rumors got out of control, I have to tell you. So even here, did she cause a thunderstorm to interrupt the execution of innocent men? No. Did she poison an inmate with gumbo to save him from the terror of his end? No. Did she work voodoo against the judges to free men from prison? No. (laughs) Um, Here's what the papers said about her actual involvement, which a lifetime of studying people's characters and learning their secrets can get you. So here's what the paper said about her. Whenever a prisoner excited her pity, Marie would labor incessantly to obtain his pardon or at least a commutation of sentence, and she generally succeeded. No shrewder judge of character could have been found, and when Marie interceded, there was generally good grounds for mercy. And then someone else said, Marie Laveau's heart prompted her to visit the parish prison whenever its walls held any unfortunates condemned to death. She labored earnestly for the salvation of the souls of poor sinners such as these. She built altars beside which she could pray with them, and she went to them often in the last days of their miserable lives. Wow, that doesn't sound like a woman who's going off to um, take advantage of people and be nefarious herself. Not at all. And you know what? Those things seem to be more in character with the person that I'm seeing in all this history. From my skeptical mm, perspective, I am more impressed by practical deeds like this and examples of someone's true character than any doctrine they say out of their mouth. You know, she seems to me like the real deal. And the accounts also reveal that she used her influence to reconcile these prisoners with, are you ready to take a breath here? With Jesus at their end, which follows my premise that their Catholic and voodoo beliefs existed simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I, I agree with everything you just said. Everything. I totally believe that what people do is so much more important. That's a truer sign of their character than what they say. I mean, anybody can recite chapter and verse. Can you live it? So, you know, especially this last push of hers really kind of cemented my viewpoint of her as a benevolent person. So Marie Laveau lived in the cottage, the little cottage with fellow men and her children and Eloise's children and some relatives of Christophe's. It's seriously the same old overcrowded household that she's always had. I'm not entirely sure if the Choctaw women were gone by then. I don't suppose it matters, but. (laughs) Maybe the yard's empty. Maybe it's not. Um, Her hair became white and her once legendary posture became stooped. But she's still this reverenced 
figure. She's got respect from the black and colored community while simultaneously being young and holding what amounted to orgies out at the lake. You know what? Legends are funny things. (laughs) So even Marie Laveau's death is corrupted by the legend of Marie Laveau. The story goes that Marie Laveau, the voodoo queen, was swept into the waters of Lake Pontchartrain by a ferocious wind that lifted her cabin right off of its foundations where she a... Drowned, B, drowned, then came back to life because of the spirits. C, said to her rescuers that she wanted to die in the lake, but was rescued against her will. D, promised the voodoo gods she'd retire if only they saved her. Or E, walked across the water to safety. Hmm. Or maybe F, the documented and real story. She died, surrounded by followers and her family of complications of old age, on June 15th, 1881, at the age of 80. I'm going with the last one, please. <laughs> Her cause of death was actually listed as diarrhea, which that makes me feel sad. That's not very dignified. It's likely it was the hottest summer in living memory, evidently. And, you know, we're 80 years from home air conditioning. Mm-hmm. And she probably died of dehydration and heat stroke. Having lived several summers in New Orleans, I could... I could say that's probably what happened. So who the heck drowned in the lake, I guess, is what I'm saying. Somebody, maybe, I don't know. Uh, they think maybe another voodoo priestess named Angeli Levasseur, whose sad fate got kind of glued onto the legend of Marie Laveau. Maybe. And this Angeli uh, Levasseur was actually another candidate for the possible Marie number two. In case it wasn't full of men, this was another possibility. Mm-hmm. Well, Marie's funeral was elaborate and well attended by all levels of society. It was a Catholic funeral. It was said you couldn't get within three blocks of it because of all the people trying to attend. Marie was famous. She was famous. Both the real Marie and the legendary one, both famous. An enormous amount of people followed her coffin to her tomb, which is above ground, as graves in New Orleans are, due to the low water table. Probably... At St. Louis Cemetery Number 1, under the name Widow Paris. It's interesting that on the tomb, originally it says age 98, and it's kind of corrected to 78, which in fact she was 80. So, there you have it. That's a little closer, I guess. Well, it was probably easier just to change the 9 to a 7 than to worry about changing the 8. Yeah, than, I don't no, know. I totally agree. Yeah. Um, so, there is another tomb, that of the mysterious Marie II, maybe called the Wishing Tomb, which was in St. Louis Cemetery Number 2. And people do visit there, you know, just in case. Maybe Uh um, all of these things are so tangled up. There are people who genuinely believe Cemetery Number 2 is the right grave. So, you know, but the consensus seems to be that, yes, St. Louis Number 1 over on Basin Street, the middle vault of the Widow Paris Tomb is the real deal. And for years afterwards, until very, very recently... Up to a quarter million visitors a year visited Marie Laveau's tomb. They left offerings there. Fruit, flowers, dishes of food, rum, three nickels, the traditional payment to voodoo spirits, candies, candles. You'd mark a cross on the tomb with charcoal or pencil or brick dust, or you scratched it in even, to ask Marie Laveau for a favor, to ask her to talk to the spirits on your behalf or for whatever it was you wanted. And for years, every so often, the Catholic authorities, irritated by all this, would whitewash over all the marks. <laughs> it's kind of disrespectful. I mean, a lot of times they were scratching those into her tomb with pieces of rock that they 
picked off of another tomb. Yes. It's not an amusement park. This is not Disneyland. New Orleans is cool. It's different. It's a big tourist center. They they do their best to welcome tourists, but it's not Disneyland. So that's somebody's mama that's buried in there, and you're cracking pieces off to draw three X's on Marie Laveau's tomb? Please. Well, evidently, the process is so you draw your X, and you turn around three times, and you knock on the tomb, and you yell out your wish, whatever it is you want. And then you just go away. So if your wish is granted, you have to come back. You have to circle your ex and leave an offering at that point. Like, thanks a lot for that. That was cool. Now, unfortunately and inevitably, damage to the tomb caused New Orleans authorities to begin cracking down on the markings. I mean, people are using lipstick now, ballpoint pens, um, pocket knives. This isn't, a you know, made out of unobtainium. This is a brick and mortar tomb that is not going to withstand a whole bunch more vandalism. And then somebody ruined it for everybody. In 2014, someone painted the entire tomb pink, like a nice double bubble pale pink. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good way to describe it. It wasn't quite Pepto, but... Well, and it wasn't even so much the pinkness uh, that bothered anyone because people had painted over it with whitewash you know, year after year after year after year. It it wasn't the pinkness. It was that this fool used latex paint. And latex paint, of course, is a moisture barrier. And they couldn't leave it on there, no matter how cheerful it was or how much it covered the graffiti. They could not leave it on there because the brick and mortar would start to disintegrate behind it just from humidity. New Orleans is like, doesn't it just hover on 99% at all time? Uh, Pretty much. I had great hair in New Orleans. (laughs) Curly hair is good. And oh, my gosh. I had the best hair of my life in New Orleans. I got to go back. So preservationists got into a giant battle about how to fix it. But ultimately, it was discovered that power washing took off the pink paint without taking off too much of the graffiti. So that's what they used. The tomb's white again or white covered in graffiti again. There's theoretically a huge fine for marking on this tomb now, but I really think the authorities are fighting a losing battle with Marie Laveau on that one. Her reputation is going to win, even over tickets, you know. Yeah. Um, But you have to now go through cemetery number one with a tour guide. Mm -hmm. So you have to be committed to either be really good at distraction or you don't appear on a camera or you come in the night and leap the fence and do it. So (laughs) it's a little harder than it used to be. Yeah, I don't like any of those. And actually, when we get to the media section, I have a couple highly recommended cemetery tours. Nice. That brings us to the end of our coverage of Marie Laveau. You know what I love the most about her is that she was clearly a multi-nuanced woman. There were so many levels to her. She wasn't, people tend to put her into two camps. She was a saint or she was a sinner. And she was this blend of both, I think, just like every one of us. I started out... (laughs) Kind of not wanting to cover Marie Laveau. I started out super suspicious and grumpy about it, I have to tell you, about Marie Laveau herself. I was not looking forward to it. And now I have to tell you, I am her biggest champion and I am more irritated at history for messing her story up. Okay, I have to say, this is one of the best parts of doing this show for me is when what happened to you just happened. I love that when it happens. Yay. Yeah, so I'm glad. I mean, she seemed more like a real person. I get behind her practical magic. I really think, I really, I don't know. I'm very impressed. I'm glad <laughs> to kind of dig through the hype, man. But let's go into media. I don't approve of any of the fictional representations of Marie Laveau anywhere. After having learned the real story, nope. 
I'm not going to mm-hmm. recommend any fictional representations of Maria Laveau, except for maybe the person in Pirates of the Caribbean who is actually not a voodoo queen, but is in fact the goddess Calypso. That is as close as I'm getting. <laughs> and I know I can hear all of you American Horror Story fans screaming at Beckett right now. No, no, no. You know what? I have a note on that, too. I do. I said, American Horror Story Coven. Angela Bassett is the greatest of actresses, but this story is the let them eat cake of New Orleans. It does Marie Laveau a giant disservice to put her on the same level as Madame LaLaurie and does not reflect the real person at all. I am very irritated. So for those of you who are in charge of filming the movie Laveau that's being filmed right now, take that into heart. Although I... I Ah, I don't know. I'm not going to set my sights too high. They have two um, actresses playing Marie and the older one. Gorgeous. And when you look at her, her name is Rachel True. She is 51 years old. She looks amazing. It's crazy to me. She was in Sharknado 1 and 2. (laughs) I know. It's work, people. We all do things that we might not be proud of at the end, but we got to put food on the table. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, so that comes out this year. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just so, I'm so, I understand why the legend is better. I do. It's more exciting. It's more exciting to have a talking snake named Zombie than it is to be treating malaria victims with tree bark. That's a fact, Jack. Yeah. But like a lot of these women that we talk about that have these biopics made and they're just so off base from what the person's life was. Her life had enough drama in it to fill a movie. You know what I mean? Without any myth or legend. And even if you compare and contrast the myth and legend to the real woman, that's drama right there. That's a movie I would love to see. Um, Actually, I have two movies to recommend that are only, you know, vaguely related to Marie Laveau. Let me mention this one. Um, It's called The Serpent and the Rainbow. And it basically covers a man who goes to Haiti to learn about voodoo and the Haitian voodoo creation of zombies. So that kind of gives you a little background into into the ancestor of New Orleans voodoo. So if you if you'd like to go deeper down that way, Haitian voodoo is not the same as New Orleans voodoo, but they certainly have um, you know, a relationship. So I liked that one. And then also there's a 1938 Betty Davis movie named Jezebel about the 1853 yellow fever epidemic. <laughs> <laughs> Good connection. Uh, yeah, there you go. Because I can't really, I just really don't want to recommend any other fictional representations. I really don't. I mean, feel free to be entertained by that. But I wish, you know, and now you guys do. You know the real story. Yeah. So. And you know what? If you are going to New Orleans and you're listening to this podcast to learn a little bit about Marie Laveau, there's so many things to do in New Orleans besides, um, you know, trying to sneak into the cemetery and put graffiti on her grave. But if you do want to go to the cemetery, there are two tours that um, I queried my New Orleans people to find out the ones that were the best and um, highly recommended. And you are going to die when you na- hear the name of this tour company, Beckett. Okay. Ready? Two Chicks Tours. Oh, nice. I know, right? Um, two Chicks Tours and... 
Um, Friends of the Cabal, though, which is also, it's part of the Louisiana State Museum. Uh, it used to house the former seat of Spanish colonial government, and now it's a museum. And both of them offer walking tours, guided walking tours, not just of the cemeteries, but of the French Quarter. Um, taking these tours is going to do so much more for you, learning about the culture of the city than anything else. Two names popped up. If you can get on uh, Gray Sweeney Perkins or George Loki Williams tour, I am told you will not be disappointed. And if anybody does go on one of those tours, please, please, on Instagram, um, put some photos up with History Chicks Field Trip or write a little travel log of your experience and we'll put it up because we're very interested. Are you ready for books? Sure. Okay. I'm just, I have narrowed my huge stack by the way, I was shocked at how many books I could get for this, um, to my favorites. My first favorite, and I know you read this one too, it's New Orleans Voodoo Priestess, The Legend and Reality of Marie Laveau by Carolyn Morrow Long. Well, I like this one the best of any of the books I have, and I have to say largely because it approaches the legends with a great deal of skepticism and comes back at you with, Actually, in the records, it says this. And it tells you where the record is. Mm -hmm. I really approve of that. Heck, the index is the back quarter of the book. Oh, I know. I was shocked that I was finished. The I had so much book left to read. And then I was like, oh, wow, look at all that. Huh. I guess I'm done. <laughs> so, so yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, maybe that colored my research. And I'm very glad that that was the first one that I picked up because it really did go, okay, yeah, that's super fun. Here's the real story. And I think that's kind of how, uh, what brought me around to really liking Marie Laveau. So then you can go back and read something like Voodoo Queen, The Spirited Life of Marie Laveau by uh, an author named Ward. That's good too. Then I have a little background reading because that's what I do. I have a book called Creole, The History and Legacy of Louisiana's Free People of Color by Sybil Kine. Okay, so remember we talked about the um, baptismal certificate that kind of changed the date of Marie's birth and gave it a little bit more validity? Right. Um, the religious scholar that did that wrote a book called The Mysterious Voodoo Queen Marie Laveau, A Study of Powerful Female Leadership in 19th Century New Orleans. And I thought this book was phenomenal. And it also did a great job of saying, okay, here's the myth. Can it hold water? And how this woman went about trying to say if it's true or not. So I thought this was great. And um, it added a whole different insight. She's a religious scholar. So she came at it from that perspective, which I thought was kind of different than the other books that I read. Yeah. The book that I had talked about earlier that had the recipes is called The Life and Works of Marie Laveau, Grigri Cleansings, Charms, and Hexes by Raul Canizares. It's very small. It's It's got a font that Beckett Graham would not approve of one bit. <laughs> That's funny. I know. I have a... Mm, I have left. a book that I have to recommend more highly than any book I've ever recommended before. Oh, my. Yeah. Again, only sideways related to this. And you know what? Be very careful because there's over 20 books in this series. And if you read one and you like it, you're going to have to buy them all and it's going to change your life. So if you're ready for that, okay. If not, hit the 15 ahead button. I, okay. Oh, wait. I'm just going to say I don't need to hit the 15 ahead button because even without you telling me what it is. Okay. Please, Beckett, please enlighten us. <laughs> <laughs> it's a book called Witches Abroad by Terry Pratchett, and it is in the Discworld series, and it incorporates voodoo, witchcraft, Cinderella, vampires, and Mark Twain's book Innocence Abroad. It is 
undescribably funny. It is the gateway drug into Discworld. This is the book. This is where you start with this book. I. It's is one that, of my two favorites. Okay, but is this where a noob would come in and say, which of these books should I read first? That's the book they should read first. Or I should yeah, say- I would say it's kind of a standalone thing. It explains itself pretty well. Okay. There's even Legba is in here. Erzuli, which is another voodoo queen, is in here. Um, Baron Samdi, who is just Mr. Saturday in, in this book, is in here. There's all kinds of references that after you've known a little bit of voodoo, you'll know. And it is just great. And I just love it. I will get this book today. I will put it on my in my ears, on my head. And I'm going to say something and I want you to keep it in, okay? Okay. I know right now our friend, the third silent history chick, JD, is like clapping his hands and wishing he could hug you. He loves that series? Oh my gosh, yes. Oh yes, he has bowed to the altar of Terry Pratchett more times than none and is a complete shock that I've never read any of these books. And strangely, and this is the only reason that's pushed it over, Terry Pratchett and my father died on the same day. Oh my goodness. I know. And you know what today is? It's my father's birthday. <gasps> I know. I I know. You know what I'm going to say? You are my gree to get through this day. That's Aww. all. I don't know what to say. Oh my goodness. Well, you, have to, you have to talk because I'm going to cry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, there is an investigative piece of journalism by Zora Neale Hurston about hoodoo. I will link you to that. Um, I'll link you to an article about it, and you can decide if you would like to go down that rabbit hole. Um, She inserted herself as a secret agent, sort of like Nellie Bly did in the mental institution, into a uh, hoodoo religious organization. Her exploits are covered in her article. Um, And then also I have an article to link you to about the pink tomb and the aftermath of the pink tomb. It's a news article. Okay. And you know what? Um, Anything New Orleans, you can't go wrong. Uh, Anything you read from frenchcreoles.com. I will warn you ahead of time. It's a very older template for the website and there's music. So when you're heading over that way, (laughs) turn your speakers off. I mean, it's Zydeco music. And if you want to listen to music, it's kind of puts you in the mood, but still no music. (laughs) So in closing... What history knows as voodoo queen Marie Laveau seems to be mostly legend. (laughs) (laughs) There she is. My phone agrees. Oh, my gosh. No, it was Christian Messer, actually. How funny. I love you, Christian. (laughs) But I would like to leave you with a quote from the favorite book, the book we both bought, A New Orleans Voodoo Priestess, The Legend and Reality of Marie Laveau by Carolyn Moreau Long. What we can piece together from the published sources and oral histories is only a silhouette of Marie Laveau, her mere outline, lacking all the detail and color of a real portrait. Tantalizingly incomplete, she's perhaps even more magnetic than she would be if fully known. Her enigma tempts us to shape her to our will, and her image has evolved over time in response to the shifting prejudices, fantasies, and desires of those who look for her. As a mirror, Marie tells us more about the era from which she is observed than she does about herself. She remains untouched and unknown, secure in her enduring aura of mystery. Thanks for listening. Bye. 
If you liked what you heard today, tell a few friends or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts, the new name for iTunes. It is about time for all of us to start taking our wonderful, magical summer vacation trips, and we cannot wait to follow along with you. If you would like to share your historical vacation photos with the group, simply tag them with hashtag HistoryChicksFieldTrip over on Instagram. You can always talk to Susan on Twitter and don't forget to check out our Pinterest boards. The Marie Laveau Pinterest board should be up by the time the show's up. The end song is When the Saints Go Marching In, which is certainly a New Orleans classic.